Well, as we uh, get going here this morning, we're beginning a new sermon series looking at the stories Jesus told. So as uh, I think Todd put it really well, we're going to spend from now uh, really until through the month of May sitting at the feet of Jesus and, and really just listening to him teach his followers uh, and others who he comes in contact with about himself, about the kingdom of God, about what it looks like to be a follower of him in the world in which we live. And so uh, that's where we're headed. The reason, uh, you know, we, we started going this direction is really because um, it's really easy to assume that we already know all of these things, right? Uh, how we should engage in the world around us and what kingdom, the kingdom of God really looks like. And, and, and I've found that even in my own heart, my assumptions are often wrong. And so what better person to learn from than the person of Jesus Christ himself? And so we're going to be looking at a lot of his stories in the book of Matthew. A lot of these are going to be parables, which we'll talk about what that means when we get to uh, what we would call a true parable. But we'll also be looking at many of his illustrations, and that's where we're going to be headed today, uh, looking at this illustration that he gives his followers of salt and light. And so if you have your Bibles, open in them to Matthew chapter 5. We're going to be looking at verses 13 to 16. And as we get going, this is a story I've told here a few years ago, but there was a time in my life, this was back in 2008. Um, well, even before then, the Lord gave me this uh, kind of hunger or desire to work in the world of pro sports. Obviously not physically, because this is not going to be a pro athlete, no matter what you do uh, to it. But right out of college, I got hired and quickly uh, fired by the Washington football team. But that just kind of gave me this taste of you know, th- this is a world that I would love to engage in at some point. And so in 2008, after about six years of campus ministry, the Lord gave uh, my wife and I an opportunity uh, to move back in that direction in the, in the world of ministry. And when a friend of mine who's the chaplain of the Yankees and the Giants called me and said, hey, you know, I, I'm, I'm not getting any younger, but these guys are who are, play- who are playing now for the Yankees and the Giants. That's who he was a chaplain for. He's like, I'd love for you to move up here and me to mentor you and Sarah into this role. And so, you know, we're giddy. We, um, you know, basically packed up in Virginia and we moved in with her folks in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, as we raised our millions, we called it to move to the New York City metropolitan area. Uh, And that year I got to commute and do chapels for the Yankees and the Giants and do outreaches and what have you. And there was one day that, um, this was, this was a pretty fun day. There was an outreach and there was some high profile New York uh, city football giants who came to share their testimony, and a couple of them uh, actually came back during the time and signed a lot of memorabilia for a fundraiser we were doing. And me, being kind of the intern or the new guy, uh, I got the job of basically sitting back for uh, 30 minutes to an hour, uh, babysitting, if you will, or keeping an eye on things as two of the high-profile players came in and just signed things for uh, a while. And so I was excited, and, and the one I was most excited about came back and and he's signing stuff, and I'm asking questions, me being the conversationalist that I am. He was very sick of me, I think, by the end. But I was like, what about this? And hey, what about this? I was kind of this starry-eyed guy here. And, and so at one point, I just said, hey, I didn't know you were a follower of Jesus. And, and I would love to know what this looks like in your world as a high-profile athlete. And, and as he's signing, he just stops and he looks up and he says, Anthony, I appreciate the question. He said, but when I grew up, my... Uh, Dad basically told me that uh, I should keep my faith separate from every other area of my life. And so since this is kind of work, I I would just rather not talk about it. And I was just like, "Mm." you know, I was was sad. 
Uh, and I was like, okay, you know, and we, and we kind of went on with it. But, but in that moment, I was a little bit crushed and I was a little bit confused. Uh, and, and let me just say this, as I give this illustration, what I'm tr- not trying to do is to uh, demonize or uh, be all judgy on this guy. This guy has pressures working against him that I can't even fathom as he lives life in the public eye. But what he did communicate is actually something that I think culturally, in the church in particular, that we can espouse, that, that our faith is somehow separate than our engagement with the rest of our lives. At work, publicly, around our rec leagues, and our soccer and basketball and baseball leagues, somehow faith needs to be kept to Sunday mornings, or maybe to a home group or a Bible study, but it doesn't really flow into any other aspect of our lives. Maybe we do that because there's risk involved. Maybe we do that because there's shame involved. Maybe we do that because we just kind of want to hide and get away with stuff that we wouldn't normally be able to get away with if people knew that we proclaim to be a follower of Christ. Whatever the reason may be, there is this temptation to live as if our Christian faith is not a public faith. That our Christian faith should never engage with the world around us. But the question is, is is that really what Scripture teaches? Is that what Jesus himself teaches? Well, this morning we're going to look at Jesus' first illustration. It's going to be that of salt and light. It's a teaching found in Matthew 5 to 7 called the Sermon on the Mount, which many would say is kind of the preeminent teaching from Jesus on what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus. It opens with the Beatitudes. Maybe you're familiar with those where it says, Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the peacemakers, right? You've probably heard that. And it's coming right off of that teaching on the Beatitudes that we see Jesus give this first illustration. And so here's the question of our time this morning. How should Christians engage the world around them? How does Jesus teach Christians should engage the world around us? Is it as separatists? Kind of like the example I shared, right? Uh, Or separatists in that we just kind of build this Christian subculture where we never have to engage with the watching world. Should we be culture warriors, right? Should we live in fear? Should we get into our escape pods and wait until the trumpets sound and finally get out of this place? Should we be combative? Should we conform? What posture should we take? Well, again, in your Bibles, Matthew chapter 5, we're going to read verses 13 to 16. Feel free to follow along with me. Jesus says this, You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Let me pray for us as we get going here this morning. Lord, as Steve prayed, we, we come before you now maybe more than ever with so many questions. Lord, in some ways, maybe the last year has given us pause enough to really consider you for the first time. Maybe it's those who are seeking you. Maybe it's those of us who have assumed our faith for so long, but uh, really the rubber has met the road in this last year of our lives. And so uh, I pray that you will meet us here as we begin this series and as we look today at this picture of salt and light. 
Holy Spirit, would you soften our hearts to your word and to your movement here today? Would you not leave us, or would you change us as a result of hearing from you today? And Lord, would you um, just oversee uh, the words that come out of my mouth, Lord, protect me from creating a stumbling block that's anything different uh, than the cross of Jesus Christ. And so we love you, Lord. Thanks for this time in your word, in your name. Amen. All right, so here's uh, the first thing that we're going to see Jesus say as we ask this question, how should Christians engage the world around them? And the first bullet point in the outline today is, is he actually calls his followers to move into a decaying world. He calls his followers to move into a decaying world. And this is going to be in verse 13, in him using first this illustration of salt. All right? And so, uh, first of all, I want you to see this as he tells his followers, blessed are those who are poor in spirit, so on and so forth, which are really the, uh, the monikers of the highlight reel of the Sermon on the Mount, the brief summary. He's saying, hey, uh, for my people who are poor in spirit, who are my followers, here's what's true of you. And he says, you are salt. He doesn't say you might be. Uh, He said, you are salt, the salt of the earth. And so uh, let's talk about two things here. We talk about salt. First, preserves and then perseveres. Let's talk about this idea of preserving. So salt uh, back then had at least one of the same functions that it has today, that it flavors food, right? That that was very much a part of what salt did uh, in Jesus' time as it is today. But the other area that we may or may not be as familiar with is that salt actually preserves. It preserves. So this is the world before refrigeration. And so in order to slow down the breakdown of of meats and and things of that nature, uh, they would add salt to it to slow the deterioration. And so with that, with Jesus saying, hey, you are salt uh, of the earth, right? Uh, He's really making two assumptions about the world around us. First of all, He's assuming that we actually have a relationship with the world around us, that we're not separatists from the world, right? That we're engaging with the world that that doesn't embrace Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. The second thing that we see is is what Jesus would say, and this makes sense given what we just learned in the fall as we walked through uh, the arc of the Christian story, is that the world around us is in a state of decay, in particular moral decay. It's surprising to me how many followers of Christ are shocked when they see moral decay. Now, not that they're not horrified by it, right? Evil is horrible. But, you know, the number of people being like, this is the worst it's ever been. First of all, probably not. Uh, but, but, But second of all, when we see that decay, in a way it should not deteriorate our faith. In a way, it should actually make sense and and in a strange way encourage it in that Jesus called it all the way back here 2,000 years ago. In fact, it was called, I would argue, back in Genesis chapter 3. But in the midst of seeing decay, what Jesus says one of the primary roles of my followers is is to move into the decay and to preserve. To preserve that goodness that, that, that God said in creation as he created all things. He said, I made it good. And he calls us to be salt, moving into those places. It, it makes sense if we go back, we've been talking about the captivity a good bit as we walked through the book of Habakkuk. And so if you look at Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 7, uh, when God's people are in captivity, right? They're in enemy territory. They are exiles. What does he say to them? Seek the welfare of the city that you're in. 
Now here's what I often see as we say, okay, I'm salt, right? That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to be salty. I'm going to preserve the moral decay in the world around us. And oftentimes what that moves us to, especially today, is confrontation. Is fighting against the world around us. But if we think about the context of what just came before this, blessed are the peacemakers. Or if we look at Jesus in another book talking about this idea of salt, where he says, so it is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. It's fascinating how often the term peace shows up in the context of Jesus calling us salt. So I would argue confrontation is not what's in view here. In fact, I would say a primary way that Christ's followers are salt in the world around us is to be peacemakers. Here's a second picture we see from salt, or at least as Jesus talks about, it perseveres. This salt perseveres. You see what it says here? If salt lost its taste, how shall saltiness be restored? Uh, if it's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. So uh, there might be some of you who are like, you know, chemistry, you're awesome at chemistry, it makes sense to you, it makes no sense to me, so I envy you if chemistry makes sense. But you may be saying, Anthony, salt cannot lose its saltiness. It's a stable compound, and it doesn't break down in that way, right? That's what you were thinking. All of you were thinking that this morning, right? No, you were not, but, uh, well, a couple of you might be. Well, let me, let me just give you a picture of, of how we usually envision salt. I had an opportunity a number of years ago when I was uh, in college to drive from Virginia to California with some friends. And one stretch of the journey I did by myself was uh, driving through the state of Utah. And so in Utah, you've got uh, the Great Salt Lake, and then you've got the Great Salt Desert that's around it. And so what happens is the salt water will, the water will evaporate, and what's left on the surface is salt. And literally, in the middle of this place, there is a Morton's factory, like Morton's salt, right? It was kind of crazy. I was like, no way, right? Um, totally fascinating. But this is how, uh, really, we get a lot of our salt. Now, I'm sure there's some sort of factory process now where they can just kind of make it from nothing. I don't know. But, but this is what we would anticipate happening with regards to how we view the gathering of salt. But as Jesus is writing, salt is gathered quite differently. In fact, the salt in that culture would probably look more like this. It's a rock that they would dig up from the ground. And so here's what happens is that, um, you know, this sort of rock salt, it's mixed with all, uh, all sorts of other impurities, right? Other minerals and whatnot get into it. Uh, but salt is very much a part of it. And over time, what can happen is that water can run against this rock and because salt is more water-soluble than some of the other substances that would be in the rock, it would actually remove the salt from it, and you could still have this rock, but the rock's no longer salty. It's these impurities. And then what would then happen if that's the sort of rock they got up and they realize this isn't salty anymore? They'd do things like throw it on their uh, kind of top deck. That's where they would go out instead of decks on the back of our house. They would throw it out there to, uh, you know, replace some of the, the soil that had eroded over the course of time. But what Jesus is saying to his people is, as you engage and act as salt in the world around you, what I don't want you to do is to conform to the world. I want you to engage with the world, to preserve what is good in the world, but not to look like the world, not to conform to it. Because in that moment, we are eroded and we become that rock of just the impurities that's left. And so how do we engage in a decaying world? It's not 
through conflict. It's not through conformity, but rather it's through preservation. And so let me ask you a question. As you engage in the world around you, are you prone to find conflict with it? Or are you prone to conform to it? Here's what Jesus is really saying. It's it's really neither of those directions. He's saying, get in there and preserve. One pastor I was listening to this week said this. He said, what Jesus is is basically saying, he's saying, find the people. Find the, the neighborhoods. Find the communities. Find the cities that are breaking down. That are breaking down spiritually and emotionally and socially. And get in. And do what we'll see later. Good deeds. To love it. To restore it. Sacrifice of your time and your talents and your treasures to bring preservation in those contexts. Now here's the other aspect that is usually overlooked, I think, when this is is taught on, is the flavor part. I actually don't think Jesus is getting rid of the flavor in this whole salty discussion, right? I, I really believe that Christians should also kind of be the spice of the world around us. I don't know, that's not a spice, is it? Right? No, I've failed with the illustration already. But, but, but I think God wants his people to do things like be so in awe of him that music comes out of us, that we write, that we create, that visual arts come out of us. I think we should be involved in things like politics, both to bring flavor and to preserve. One of my friends is an accounting professor at JMU, and in his wrestling with God and who he is, it actually caused him to publish several papers that you used broadly in the world of accounting because he understood uh, the dynamic of the depravity of mankind, uh, but also God's grace. Friends, I think Christians should be the front runners in business, in art, in the nonprofit world to preserve and to also keep flavor, right, in the world around us. Here's a second main point. Jesus calls his followers to move into a dark world. The second thing he says in verses 14 to 16 is, you are light. You are light. And so a couple things he's saying about God's people, that that, that we are illuminating and glorifying as we exist in the world around us. John, as he talks about the motif of light, right, he starts off saying Jesus is the light of the world in chapter 1. Uh, But then he goes on, and whenever he talks about darkness, he's talking about evil. And so he's saying, as as my people go about, they're exposing evil, right? In in a way, one of my friends says, pushing back the darkness is, is one of the roles that God gives us. He says, we're a city on a hill. We can't be hidden. We're a lamp that we're not, you know, when you light a light, how often do you cover it with a bowl? So he's saying, if that's who we are, don't cover up your faith, but live as a light in the world around us. For many of us, this picture of a city on the hill kind of loses its impact in our day and age because, you know, every city, every little town, every burg, sometimes a house is more lit than, you know, a little town would have been back in Jesus' day. But uh, I kind of remember the impact of light as I go backpacking. So I'm a a big chicken, a six-foot-four chicken, evidently. Uh, and, and I don't like the dark. Uh, I just don't. I don't love it. Uh, and I don't love being alone. And so when I go backpacking, I have to have a friend and I have to have a light. And I remember when I'm in some of the darkest places in like West Virginia, I'm sitting there and I see just a little house with its lights on and it brings me comfort. I'm like, okay, there's somebody else out here. 
And when I'm sitting at the campsite, I am fine as long as the fire's lit or I have my headlamp. And and, and really, that's the function uh, that God has given to his people in a dark world where it is wrought with fear, where it is wrought with evil. That, you know, salt is kind of put in the negative where we preserve, but but light is this motif of saying, hey, uh, we are the ones who should be um, leading the way to hope, to hope of the gospel, to the hope of neighbor love. The second thing that we see here that he says in verse 16 is that uh, our illuminating, uh, which really is this picture of good deeds, is also glorifying God. That as we live out as lights in the world around us, it actually brings him glory. Did you read it where he said it? In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. It's the same picture that we see in 1 Peter 2. Peter's writing about the church. He says, church, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possessions, that you may proclaim the excellencies of he who has called you out of darkness and into marvelous light. A major component of what we do if we are followers of Christ is to proclaim his goodness through how we live our lives. Now, there's typically two ditches where I say the word good works in church. Sometimes people go, "Uh uh-oh, he's talking about works again, right? Uh, Works righteousness. We got to be careful with that. And what people usually get a little ruchy about when we talk about that is, is, um, the false belief that Christianity says, uh, I obey, therefore I am loved, right? And that's not what Christianity says. Uh, Christianity doesn't say, I do good things, therefore God loves me. What Christianity says is, is, I am loved, therefore I obey. What is true comes before what to do, and the order is not reversible. But what Jesus is saying is, is, is if you are my follower... If you've placed your faith in me, if you are loved by me, then you will live out my life in the world around you. You will do good works. The two ditches we can often fall into when it comes to living our lives out loud, right, in a watching world, is we'll fall into the ditch of evangelism only. The only way to live as a light is to share our faith, or good works mostly, Right? Where it's just about uh, doing good works, but if they never know I'm a believer, you know, that's okay. That's, that's great. We'll keep moving there. But I would say Jesus even here pushes back against that paradigm. Obviously, explicitly, it's saying part of the role of the disciple is to live good works. But implicitly, it's saying uh, in order for, well, you, we've just got to be able to uh, deduce that if we are living in a way that gives glory to God, they've got to somehow know who to glorify, right? They've got to know that we're a follower of Jesus Christ in order to glorify him. D.A. Carson says this, the kingdom norms of the Beatitudes, the poor in spirit, the merciful, the peacemaker, they work their way into the lives of kingdom heirs and it produces kingdom witness. And what Jesus is doing is he's warning against a withdrawal from the world that does not leave others to glorify God in heaven. There is a great danger when Christians withdraw from the world around them. And so let me uh, keep unpacking this picture of, of what it means to be salt and light. And let me just say, this church has actually discipled me greatly in this way. 
Some of you have moved into Philadelphia in order to minister to immigrants. You've packed up in the suburbs and you've moved into the city. For some, they took a Sunday school class on the book of Isaiah. And they said, hey, this is God's mercy and justice. We've, we've got to engage here. There's got to be an application from this. And now there's a coffee roaster who gives their proceeds away to help those who are coming out of human trafficking. There was a young doctor in our church who one day sat down and said, I am seeing the horrors of what's happening to the unborn. And I'm seeing the horrors of, of the women who are making these impossible choices without much help. And so that's where Alpha Care came from, an organization who we now support. Seven Mile Road, Sibby came and preached here a couple of months ago, and, and they had a home group who said, hey, how, how do we act as salt and light in our neighborhood? And there was a North Hills community that was struggling, and they said, hey, how can we serve you? And now they've handed them the keys to their after-school programs, uh, and they've started something called uh, the North Hills Collective that we're engaged with, that we're trying to say, Lord, how can we continue to be salt and light? Many of you have fostered, you've adopted, you've cared for those who are suffering and been salt and light in the world around you. The, The point is, how on earth as a church can we get in there to the places, into individual lives and into communities to serve and love, to preserve so that our good deeds may glorify God? Pretty much out of time, I'm going to do some slicing and dicing here on this last point. But here's what I I want us to see here in this last point as we talk about how should we then move to be salt and light in the world around us. And and let me just say this. I think, first of all, we need to do it with humility. We need to do it with humility. We don't have time to walk through it, but, but what precedes it? When we talk about these stories and parables, here's what I want you to pay really close attention to is the context around it. We can't just lift this out of its context. This, what we're talking about being salt and light, is an application of the Beatitudes. To be poor in spirit. You know what it means to be poor? It means to be totally reliant upon someone else for our sustenance. That's the starting point of a disciple. It's not pride. It's not self-righteousness. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who are merciful. Blessed are those who are peacemakers. This is the application of that. The other thing we read earlier, I won't have time to slow down on too much, but do you know the two verses that precede this? Do you know what it talks about? Persecution. If we live like this, we should probably expect to face persecution. We should not be shocked about it. It it probably should push back against our initially getting angry about it. In fact, it should in some ways embolden our faith that we're identifying with Christ in new ways. Because we're doing exactly what he called would happen as we live as light and as salt in the world around us. And friends, the reason we can walk humbly and the reason we should expect difficulty is because who we're following. We're following Jesus Christ, who humbled himself and came into the world, who faced suffering so that he could push back the darkness and decay of the world around us. John 8 said, blessed are those, oops, sorry. John 8 says again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Jesus is the light par excellence. And he so transformed his followers so that they in turn become the light of the world.
Let me close this in prayer. Well, Lord, we know the pull of our heart is to withdraw from culture, either through fighting against it or conforming to it. Lord, for those who are a part of this church, who are followers of you, who have given into one of these two paradigms that you actually don't espouse in your word, I pray that you will retune our hearts to understand that, that you've called us to move into the world in a preservational manner. Lord, that as we follow you, the true salt and light of the world, into a decaying and dark world, that we are engaging in your work of preserving and illuminating. Lord, I pray that you will be glorified as we live out in that way. And Lord, for my friends who are here, who have seen your people, and probably myself included, operate in a way that is quite contrary to that, and they think, oh, this is what it looks like to follow Jesus. It's to be angry. It's to be uh, just totally a conformist, Lord. I pray that you will help them to see you and who you are and what your word teaches, and that, Lord, that would woo their hearts to you. And so, Lord, we love you. Thanks for this time, and thanks for your word. We pray these things in your name. Amen.